out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. For today's show, stay tuned to hear about water affordability. The cost of water and sewer services is rising three times faster than inflation in the USA, and that expense hits low-income households disproportionately as people struggle to pay for water. Is the water free of contaminants? We of Eco Radio are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to assure sure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present or a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour, but first, here's some environmental news for the week of November 28, 2022. Democracy Now! reports, delegates at the UN Climate Summit agreed to establish a landmark loss and damage fund to help the global South deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe, largely caused by rich countries. The U.S. historically the world's worst polluter was the last major holdout on the proposal before finally agreeing to the fund, but it's unclear how these commitments will be enforced. Earth Justice reports. For two weeks in November, world leaders held climate negotiations at the annual UN Climate Change Conference, COP27. This year, their conversation were informed by the historic Climate Justice Pavilion that brought forward the rarely heard voices and perspectives of the most vulnerable communities. Inside Climate News reports, over the course of a year, the tech company Aklama will be collecting air quality data in New York City from a fleet of 21 modified Google Street View vehicles. Every second, a filter in the vehicle samples the air to detect the presence and concentration of air pollution. While the quality of the air is getting better overall, there are some communities and neighborhoods where the levels of pollution are more intense. Morning Ag Clip reports. At the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP27, this week, Secretary of Agriculture Tim Vilsack highlighted the U.S. Department of Agriculture's initiative and investment in climate-smart agriculture and forestry. Vilsack announced funding up to $2.8 billion in 70 selected projects under the first pool of the Partnership for Climate-Smart Commodities funding opportunity. These will expand markets for climate-smart commodities, leverage the greenhouse gas benefits of climate-smart commodity production, and provide direct, meaningful benefits to production agriculture, including for small and underserved producers. Kansas Reflector reports, Effergy, the largest electric utility in Kansas came to agreement with consumer and environmental advocates on a variety of programs meant to lower energy demand and save consumers money. The plan requires approval by the KCC. 
Effigy has had energy efficiency programs in Missouri for years, but establishing those same programs in Kansas have proven difficult. And Kansas is behind nearly every state in its investment in energy efficiency policies and programs. Now, the KCC could have a hearing on the new proposals in early December before Effigy and stakeholders file briefs to persuade the commissioners to pass one package or another. The KCC is expected to meet to make a decision in mid-February 2023. EcoWatch Radio reports, you may find yourself driving on an EV charge road in the near future. In Detroit, inductive charging technology is being added to two short roads, a project that will be the first wireless electric road system in the United States. The road will be capable of charging electric vehicles that install a special receiver while they drive. The roadway will be fully functional by 2023. Now our show. So I'd like to turn it over to Molly Carding to tell us about how they passed that bill in Washington State. Thank you, Doris. Um, I'm hoping everyone can hear me. Let me know. Raise a hand if you can. Um, I can see some lovely faces. I've got my my notes up here. Um, thank you for that introduction. I just also want to thank the Water Sentinels and Sierra Club for having me here today. My name is Molly Cotting. Um, I uh, live in Minnesota now. Um, I'm in Tacoma, Washington today, and I work for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources doing environmental justice coordinating for our forestry department. So that's just a little background on the, you know, constellation map of environmental justice work that I'm that I'm up to. I'm really excited and grateful to share about our successful campaign that helped to protect children from lead in their school drinking water. In 2021, we passed that monumental piece of um, protection for public school students. Um, and we did that because of the amazing engagement and organization we had from environmental health advocates, including parents, environmentalists, um, pediatricians and public health professionals. And it really does serve as a blueprint model for other states looking to provide similar protections. I felt so strongly about um, the, the merit and strength of our bill that when I moved back to Minnesota, I brought it up to our um, uh, representatives and I'm working with the Sierra Club North Star chapter there to pass that legislation. See, so before we begin, just briefly, um, I did want to give a land acknowledgement. I, as I stated, I'm, I'm here today joining you from the traditional lands of the Puyallup and Tuolishoot nations. I live on Dakota land. You can see um, the sacred Minnesota River Valley right here, Minnesota Wakpa. And I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that I stand with indigenous peoples who fight for clean water, for sovereignty and land back. When we acknowledge the harms of colonialism and white supremacy upon um, black, indigenous, and people of color communities and reorient the way that we think, uh, speak, and act uh, in accordance with their priorities, we open the doors for right relationship with people, places, and the earth. I wanna thank Debbie and others on the call for outlining some of the systemically racist practices that contribute to disproportionate financial burden in addressing um, water issues like lead in communities that were formerly redlined. Um, lead exposure, I'm just gonna move here. Lead exposure, lead remediation, and um, infrastructure investment are all environmental justice issues. We know that lead exposure is incredibly toxic to the body, including the nervous system, even at extremely low doses. 
Um, when micrograms of lead are introduced to children through water, dust, or paint chips, it severely impacts their brain's ability to develop and can contribute to behavioral issues, emotional well-being, and limit both educational and economic potential. Because of this, this is why uh, lead in gasoline, paint, and plumbing infrastructure is no longer permitted. But we also know that lead exposure is not distributed evenly throughout the U.S. Low-income communities and Black, Indigenous people of color are exposed to much more lead from a variety of um, sources. Oh, oh, God, that's sorry. I went a little bit too, too far there. Um, where was I on my slide? Yeah, so systemically racist pro, uh, policies like redlining um, contributed to segregation, destroyed property values, and uh, generational wealth. And the disinvestment in these neighborhoods where pipes and uh, paint contained lead um, contributes to that uh, disproportionate risk. We know that any lead exposure is bad and all exposures accumulate. So for these reasons, um, these communities are at increased risk of exposure. Um, cities who use these lead service lines to deliver water uh, create the risk of contaminating drinking water. I think we've all heard uh, and are intimately aware of uh, the Flint water crisis in Michigan, as well as in Chicago, D.C., and across the United States. We know that we have large but still inadequate um, pools of money that are uh, being allocated to address lead service lines and residential exposure. But the truth is it's not just the water flowing into buildings that can be contaminated. Leaded plumbing parts um, like valves and soldering joints can also contaminate drinking water. Um, leaded plumbing parts uh, in older schools um, are are at higher risk. And children spend a significant amount of time at school and they should have confidence that the water they're drinking doesn't contain lead. We know that these schools with less funding are more likely to have older plumbing with higher amounts of lead that were permitted in these fixtures. And meanwhile, many states uh, historically have not required testing, reporting, or remediation at a health-based standard. The EPA gives guidelines for contamination of water leaving municipal water systems, but the truth is that more needs to be done to ensure that our most vulnerable populations, very young children, pregnant people, and environmental justice communities are protected from this known neurotoxin. So understanding, I think we're all on the same page, that lead exposure in water is a public health and environmental justice problem. It's easy to, to understand that we need policy solutions that protect all kids, especially those at highest risk of exposure, and those are disproportionately burdened with the cost of fixing the problem. So what do we need to address this issue? In my experience, each of us need data that speaks to our community's exposure. Unfortunately, the risk that people in Flint, uh, DC and Chicago and elsewhere have faced have not spurred the kind of progress in lowering action levels or requiring testing and reporting in many places across the country. Legislators and governors need to hear what the kids in their jurisdictions and con constituencies are exposed to. It's vital that decision makers have data about where elevated blood level lead levels are, but it's also critical we have data that pinpoints which schools and how many outlets inside of schools are flagging elevated water levels in order for us to like get a comprehensive approach to addressing this issue. And data alone, though, is not going to get us across the line. It's too easy uh, in budget shortfall years when we don't have majority political representation or the noise of uh, other social, political, and economic pressures, um, while also necessary, uh, contributes to ignoring this problem. It's not right, it's an injustice, and that's why our legislative sponsor on this bill, Jerry Paulette, had to try seven times to pass this legislation, even in a state as progressive as Washington State. 
We needed to engage stakeholders, educate the public, and involve our supporters in addressing opposition to the matter. It takes public pressure, media exposure, a depth of legislative organizing in order to compel stakeholders that um, you know, we need to protect kids and ensure that we meaningfully reduce their risk. I think the other point on this slide um, is just some of that um, legislative communications. I just wanted to highlight one of the things that um, I was responsible for was um, coming up with uh, personalized memos for each representative and senator in our state that took a look at the voluntary, te voluntary test testing data that was available and, and showing them what the levels were in um, in their districts. And that was a really powerful tool that elicited strong re reactions from legislators. Some of these folks grew up in these, uh, going to these schools and could really empathize with the risk that their communities faced. So just to recap, um, before 2021, Washington State had no required testing of public schools. Representative Paulette um, was instrumental in appropriating funding for volunteer testing program, and that took results from um, private and public testing labs and made them publicly available. That's why we had access to as much data as we did. But we didn't have a health-based action level. In fact, we had a 20 part per billion standard, which is higher than the EPA's um, guidance for the lead and copper rule. It's higher than our standard for bottled water and other states like Montana, Michigan, and, and uh, our neighbors to the north in Canada. We had grants for testing and that had been exhausted through that voluntary testing program, but we had no money for schools so that they could address the issue. More affluent districts could pay for their own testing and get their remediation done, but it was done behind a curtain. We needed data um, transparency. There wasn't any requirement to report that testing, so we couldn't tell to what level those outlets were being remediated to, and we couldn't tell how they had done it, if they were flushing outlets or placing filters or actually replacing parts. So one of the first tasks I had was to perform an updated analysis of the voluntary uh, lead testing results. Doris uh, 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 gently but kindly reminded me to just bring some of this to you, so I hope this isn't um, boring anyone. But uh, oh, and my light just went off in my room. Just one second. There you go. <laughs> Um, saving energy over here. So remember that our uh, standard was 20 parts per billion, 15 parts per billion was the EPA's guidance. And then I broke it in, up into five part per billion uh, bins or buckets because over the years there have been compromises suggested um, to try and pass this bill. It's important to note that there is no safe level of lead exposure um, and research is improving in its ability to detect before below five parts per billion. And we're uh, hoping in time that the modeling studies that are used will be able to more clearly demonstrate the risk um, to lower levels of lead in water. So in this chart, you can see that 551 schools had reported testing and only 100 of those schools or 18% were below the action level that we felt was an acceptable risk to student health based on those modeling studies. Um, we used the highest risk scenarios to present the strongest feasible proposal for our bill. Said another way, and I think this is the graph that you were most interested in, Doris, 82% um, of the schools needed some help um, it, because at least one outlet in the building had exceeded the action limit. 
that's a really overwhelming number. But when we took a, a step back at the total data picture, only 17% of all of the thousands of outlets that were tested were above 15 or five parts per billion. So what that means is that in one school, you might have one or two outlets that flagged high, the next might not have any, a third could have dozens, right? Um, and Doris, you wanted me to bring up some of the outliers we found. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't demonstrate a statistically significant correlation between elevated outlets and racially diverse communities in, in Washington state um, or amongst uh, communities that have uh, experienced lower socioeconomic status. We did find, though, that three of the highest levels in the state uh, were among communities with lower income and with higher percentage of indigenous uh, students of color. So our worry was that the schools that could afford to remediate, given their higher tax base funding, were doing remediation on their own, but schools with less capacity to take on these repairs wouldn't have the resources to adequately address the issue. So armed with this data now, our next step was to build an ally network. I wanted to, uh, not to get us too bogged down in all of these logos, but I wanted to illustrate just how many organizations came together on this issue. Since 2017, Representative Paulette had worked with uh, Environment Washington, the University of Washington, and the, my research host site, um, the Department of Health, our Educators Association, our Public Health Boards, the Pediatricians Association. Um, all of these folks were working together in concert, but we knew we were missing one vital group. Um, we needed to get this over the line with the help of our parents in the state. Washington is really fortunate in that their state uh, PTA Association is extremely politically active and organizes for student uh, mental and physical health. So with this broad coalition, we felt really confident that we could face um, the bill's opposition and get it passed that year. Let's see. Okay, so before the session kicked off, we strategized how we were gonna get legislative support. This uh, meant that we were meeting with stakeholders and gathering their support or the capacity they had to support us, as well as meeting with opposition about what compromises we could reach but leave the meat of the bill intact. Um, there was a coalition of school board directors and they were actually our most vocal opposition. They thought that the price tag on the bill was grossly underestimated and they were misinformed and misinforming um, legislators about the way that lead enters drinking water within a building. They really uh, had what I would call an underlying resentment that they had remediated, the, remediated their own buildings without government support and they didn't wanna have to go back and remediate to a lower level. They didn't want to deal with the public outcry about results. And they, you know, pretty ugly, uh, didn't want others to get assistance when they hadn't had that opportunity. So we wanted to build on this strong base of support that I illustrated in the last slide and uh, get support also inside the legislature. So for that reason, we wrote on um, these sign-on letters asking for a broad coalition of co-sponsorship presenting a united front. And we also met with the governor's cabinet to ask them to renew their support for testing so that we could count on that separately from asking the legislature for funding to remediate. I think it's really important and hopefully inspiring for the folks on this call to stop here and uh, just encourage all of us that voters, advocates, residents, members of the public, um, we need hundreds if not thousands of acts of support in order to get bills passed. Um, at each of these stages, we did community engagement with the public to make sure that they were informed, involved and had a voice about their priorities in this process. And this is how we involve them. Um, through our network of advocacy organizations and their connections to residents, 
Um, we hosted community education seminars. We did online webinars, much like what I'm um, doing, talking with you all today. We checked in weekly um, with our allies and had them um, distribute calls for action. We also campaigned really hard for this bill. Uh, I kind of exhaustively went over all of the evidence that we prepared uh, to just present the need for this to improve public health uh, during a pandemic, but we gave uh, media interviews, asked people to write their legislators. Um, we gave communities communicate, communicate, ugh, I can't talk, communication materials um, it translated into different languages so that they understood the issues and could go to their local representatives, school administrators, and school boards um, to get some more support. And then we also asked them to provide letters to their editors, uh, asking professionals in the medical field, as well as uh, concerned citizens to take uh, their message to, to um, their local newspapers. And this slide just illustrates, and I think it's important, so there's a lot on here, um, the arc or trajectory of this bill. I wanted to just hammer home how this is a multi-year, multi-layered, multi-pronged approach for passing. The long game, right, is, is sometimes hard in the waiting. So we started in 2016. Um, many of us might remember that's the first time that we were hearing about this, on a, uh, that I heard about it on a national level, the need for more intentional infrastructure oversight and transparency to support um, addressing lead problems in the water. Governor Inslee immediately in issued a review of our policies and a group of tenacious environmental advocates led by the late Bruce Spite from Environment Washington worked with Representative Paulette on legislative solutions. A, a year later, um, excuse me, that's when we got our uh, voluntary testing approved and added to state statute. But you'll notice a, a significant gap. For three years, we attempted to get this passed and we couldn't get that mandated testing protocol. Some sessions we couldn't even get called up for a hearing. And then we would um, perhaps get it through committee but not pass the House, or it wouldn't get passed over to the Senate. So it's really a long and arduous climb to success. It's something that I'm reminding myself as we're very much in the middle of it in Minnesota. I'm just really uh, grateful, honestly, that I got to participate in um, this process during its final leg. I learned so much about how to organize and research and communicate results in compelling ways, how to advocate and strategize for success. Um, these lessons, last a lifetime, I believe, and that's why I'm so grateful that Washington has been really instrumental in inspiring other states to tackle this issue. So this slide features a graphic of um, the state of testing across the U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, Environment America, their Washington chapter has, oh, is there a comment or someone's just off mute? I just coughed. Oh, yep, that'll happen. I, I feel like I'm like on the verge of like dry mouth from talking so long, <laughs> but I'm almost done. Um, so yeah, you can see in this graphic, uh, Environment America has done all these really great reports about the state of lead. You may have read uh, uh, something called Get the Lead Out. This is from their website. Uh, in this picture, you can see in dark blue, these are areas in the country where there's significant testing data. Light blue means that there's a testing program in place, but not a lot of data to support a comprehensive picture. And then yellow means that there's a testing program announced, but there's no data. So I want us to just take a moment and find yourself on the map and thank your champions. Maybe you are one of those champions in your state, um, but it's also uh, just a little bit of a, a tip or a gentle push to ask questions about where that data is housed, when testing will begin, and how we translate, great, we've done testing, but what about action? 
So after wrapping up my degree in Washington, my family made the decision to move back to Minnesota. I had opportunities to tackle environmental justice issues in my home state. And I knew the first thing I was gonna do was connect with legislators about stepping up our progress in Minnesota. Um, Minnesota was one on the leading edge of uh, requiring testing. Our Department of Health uh, issued a robust protocol that was a model for other states with updates about how testing has to be completed and how the Department of Health can support school districts in tailoring action plans unique to their um, school building. And then we have that complementing data we have about where elevated blood lead levels are among Minnesota children um, so that the Department of Health can target communities for education and outreach on the dangers of lead and provide in-home testing. But what we don't have um, is a reasonable amount of transparency about the results in any individual school district. So right now, if you wanted to know what the latest testing results are in your school, you have to file for a release of information request. We have no action level um, guidance. It's super vague in statute um, and it's related to, well, you know, depending on the method of testing, the flow of water in the building, the time of stagnancy, all of these factors, right? Um, they don't have like a hard and fast stop gap. And there's no centralized data management. So I was talking about that transparency uh, point because there's no reporting mechanism. This really presents a cumbersome task for any staff or researcher or legislative advocate to collect a significant amount of data to um, tell legislators how bad the problem is. The state doesn't have a comprehensive idea of the trends across the state or remediation strategies in order to um, put together a recommended funding package. So um, another thing in our first, we introduced a bill last session that made it all the way through both House and Senate and committee. Um, and even though we had unanimous bipartisan support, it died on the omnibus uh, floor. We never got that bill passed out of um, the Senate. We're hopeful that our second try will be successful. We just got our election results and, and we know now that our Senate will be prepared to act on measures this year. Um, but I have a residual concern about the barriers to getting access to some of our uh, strategic ally groups like we had in Washington. In Minnesota, our PTA isn't politically active, um, but we have support from the Sierra Club and uh, another like sort of coalition of environmental groups called Minnesota 350 or MN350. Um, I'm really hoping this year that I'll be able to connect with more parent groups, find ways to reach them with some of those education and engagement opportunities like we used in Washington, um, as well as use a little bit more media outlets to elevate the issue. Um, before I end this, stop sharing and get to see your beautiful faces again, I just wanted to briefly touch base on what we're learning from other organizations and states about how to best tackle this problem. So uh, folks on the call may know that Environment America last year received a really large grant to provide certified filters to schools. They really um, feel strongly that this is a, a feasible and practical strategy for folks that will be helpful as states ramp up testing programs. They are targeting um, cities and uh, localities with higher proportion of students from those high exposure risk categories, um, be it low income communities, those with aging infrastructure um, and um, communities with the majority students of color. California also recently passed um, stricter standards for producers of lead plumbing, opening the door up to increasing capacity to get rid of um, uh, any measurable amount of lead in school plumbing and clearing the way for Washington and other states, like you mentioned, Doris, to go below five parts per billion. 
um, there are cities that have passed one part per billion. So we know that it's doable. It's just bit by bit um, whittling it down. And lastly, I wanted to report on the state of progress in Washington. I recently talked to Representative Paulette. I asked him for any updates, and he encouraged me to look at the Department of Health's website. Since passing the bill, um, the testing rollout has actually been hampered as state agencies try to identify a testing prioritization protocol. So it's just really important to understand that because of department's capacity to test, be it personnel or the number of labs that are currently testing, um, we need strategies that are actionable and quick acting um, because it's really discouraging to see that two years later, we're no closer to reaching some of those schools that haven't yet tested. It just really underscores this ongoing struggle to make sure that public health agencies have enough resources to staff programs like ours. And with that, I wanted to leave with a thank you slide. Um, I just wanted to name uh, the folks that I worked with in Washington State. Uh, you can read along with me, but Representative Paulette and his aide, Kira McCoy, Pamela Clow, and John Rumpler from Environment America. Now I'm working with Representative Howard and the Sierra Club North Star chapter um, on the bill that we'll be reintroducing uh, this, this winter. So. Support for KKFI by the Midwest Trust Center at Johnson County Community College. The Midwest Trust Center at Johnson County Community College, formerly the Carlson Center, has been a venue for the performing arts and arts education since 1990 and, in support of KKFI, offers a full list of events and can accept donations at jccc.edu forward slash Midwest Trust Center. The kids want to put up a trampoline, but that old car is in the way. Why don't we give that car to Vehicles for Charity? It's great for both of us. We get rid of the car while getting a tax deduction, and KKFI gets the proceeds from the car whether it's running or not. Donate it to KKFI Vehicles for Charity, 816-931-3122. Thanks for listening to KKFI. Be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. And thanks for 30 years of support. Okay, thank you for staying with us here on Eco Radio. The next part of the show, I'm going to play a portion of a film that they showed at the same conference that Molly just spoke at. The film is entitled Whose Water, and it's by the National Coalition for Legislation for Affordable Water, and it deals with lead contamination, water affordability, and the relationship between the two. And I'll talk about that for a couple minutes after the show. Six nine eight forty. Forty one two one. The address. Six nine eight forty. Yeah, man, I'm trying to pay the water bill. Twenty two dollars. Hey, look at this. They coming to cut my water off. I have four, five, four kids, and my wife she's bringing it inside the house. And what are we supposed to do? Here, get the get the audio going. Get the audio going. Bro, I got it. Here, just my dad. What are you doing, man? We're just taking a seat. I'm gonna a... I got to work right here, bro. I know. So what are you doing? You got a tough job, man. I know I got a tough job, but you can't sit there, bro. Sir, excuse me. I got to do my job while you sit right here. 
He's right here trying to stop us from turning off the water. No, United States, the burden of providing access to safe, affordable water and sanitation falls on local communities. However, many communities are fighting industrial and political systems that have grown so powerful that they have stripped their host communities of both resources and political strength. As a result, such communities must struggle to secure the human right to water and sanitation. My water was shut off for eight weeks. I learned how to recycle water. I'll cook something that I can boil that doesn't use all the water. And that way I can take the water from whatever I cooked and use it to wash dishes. And then I can take the dish water and use it to flush the toilet. I wouldn't drink any water because I said, well, if I have any extra water for drinking, then I'm going to give it to my child. I'm not going to drink it myself. I ended up with one of the diseases that our health department expert was saying can result from not having water. So I go to the hospital. I have a temperature of 104. Um, I have chills. They thought I had the enterovirus at first because I have children and I'm at my children's school, but they found out that I did not have that. But what I had actually was bacterial influenza. Good afternoon. Thank you for calling Michigan Welfare Rights. Uh, yes, ma'am, we do deliver water. Let me give you the number. 
Uh, you have to call. Uh, My name is Maureen Taylor, and I serve as the state chairperson of the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. We understand that access to safe, affordable water and sanitation is a right that cannot be taken away. The United States has signed and has ratified international human rights treaties prohibiting discrimination by race, protecting the rights of the child, and affirming the human right to safe and affordable water. As part of their recognition of the human right to water, the United Nations, the UN, says that water does not have to be free, just affordable. between assistance and affordability. funding for uh, help with water assistance? Okay, right now the program is closed until probably sometime around mid Okay, so you're overbooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the demand um, here is extreme. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. To understand the water affordability crisis, we need to understand the history of why water rates in cities like Detroit got so high and why they keep rising. Starting right after World War II, many white families could not get out of the cities fast enough. Their urge to settle in the suburbs was facilitated by federal subsidies for suburban developments that were often closed to African Americans. Ironically, at this time, many cities expanded their infrastructure in order to serve suburban communities. 
the new majority white suburbs purchased their water from city water departments, then sent their sewage back to be treated by city wastewater treatment plants. Throughout the 1970s, federal funding to urban infrastructure plummeted like a bad day on Wall Street. This administration cut more than $7 billion out of spending plans in order to produce a surplus in 1970. In referring to budget cuts, there is one area where I have ordered an increase rather than a cut. And that is the requests of those agencies with the responsibilities for law enforcement. We must declare and win the war against the criminal elements which increasingly threaten our cities, our homes, and our lives. The city had to make a difficult choice, borrow money or raise rates. Thus, we turned to debt. Privately run bond rating agencies determine how safe it is for an investor to lend the city money. In the 1980s, agencies began to lower bond ratings of many cities across the country. They focused on declining populations, but also on what they called demographic projections, which translated to higher costs for us to borrow money and thus costs to run the system. The city water department reserves continue to be stretched thin. Therefore, treating wastewater for the entire region was not an easy task. In Detroit, we ended up with events where we literally dumped raw sewage into the Detroit River. the 1970s, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, was founded and the Clean Water Act was passed. At its core, this was a deeply needed policy intervention to regulate what both private companies and public entities can dump into our water sources. But as cities received less and less funding from the federal government, we were forced to comply with standards we simply could not afford. In his first major action as head of the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, William Ruckelshaus today served notice on three major U.S. cities, Detroit, Cleveland, and Atlanta, to halt violation of water quality standards or face possible court action. He gave the three cities 180 days to get procedures underway that would satisfy the agency's standards. Mayor Roman Griggs of Detroit issued an ultimatum of his own, giving the federal government a deadline of one day less than he was given. Gribbs wants the government to provide money for water pollution control within 79 days. The people in the state of Michigan, the people in this country are going to have to make up their mind and say this country belongs to us or it doesn't. Grassroots organizations have spent the last 20 years advocating for a water affordability plan. Our work originated when Highland Park, Michigan, a small majority black city, began to see their rates rise to unprecedented levels. 
Every time I get a bill, it's up $2,000, $2,000, $2,000. We did not use $4,500 worth of water. It was around 2001. Jobs and tax dollars were hemorrhaging from the city. Corporations were in the middle of a decade-long crusade to reduce labor and export jobs to beef up their bottom line. Residents of Highland Park were repeatedly told if we were just more fiscally responsible, their water department wouldn't be drained of its revenues and drowning in debt. In the late 1990s, an official appointed by the governor at that time took over Highland Park and began to drastically increase the rates, decrease services, and began to cut off water. Water may be free. Stand outside with a bucket when it rains. Processing and delivery costs money. Highland Parkers were being indoctrinated into a popular, misguided perception. We see proliferating across the country. When local governments cannot stay afloat, it is their own damn fault. Our city manager makes more money than any mayor, any city councilor, anybody that's ever made in this city. But why do we have all these people over here making money off of this poor city and we're not getting no results? A few years later, organizations got together with economists, lawyers, and city council members to draft a comprehensive program where residents would only be charged what they could afford for water. This landmark legislation would tie water rates to a percentage of a household's income. It was the first of its kind, and we were really proud of it. This water affordability plan is something that could be implemented throughout Michigan. Call two, two, Call. Four, five, four, five. Ring those phones off. Ring those bells. With the leadership of a group of venerable council women, Detroit has passed a resolution adopting the plan in 2006. Unfortunately, the resolution was not legally binding and the water department was never forced to implement that plan. Instead, the water department set up an assistance fund distributed by local charities. Their assistance funds quickly run out of money. Over the past 15 years, Detroit's water bills have continued to increase and the help from piecemeal assistance programs remains inadequate. Can we have a motion to discuss the water issue, please? Even though we totally realize it's hard on people when we raise rates, we don't do it easily. None of these people do. Um, Mr. Latimer takes no pleasure in shutting anybody's water off that can't afford to pay for it. Uh, but the but those bondholders, they really look at actions like this to, to show that we're being financially responsible. But even at though the same time, we need to be fiscally responsible. Do we become fiscally responsible and create a bigger hole where we have, hey, we got a great credit rating, but we've got 500,000 more people without water. One reason that we were fighting an uphill battle was that in 2013, the state did what it did to Highland Park in the early 2000s. It appointed an emergency manager to run the city. 
This is an individual that was not elected by the people. This is an individual that cannot be removed by the people. This is an individual whose decisions cannot be overturned by the people in the name of fiscal uh, solvency. The one thing the manager cannot do is miss a payment to bondholders. The only person the emergency manager is beholding to is the governor. The governor, of course, wants to improve the city's bond rating. It has the potential to drag down the state's capacity to borrow money. The irony is that implementing a water affordability plan would be far more fiscally responsible than shutting people's water off. The water crisis is a political crisis. Other people have adopted and implemented affordability programs. It is not a revolutionary idea. It has been done, it has worked, it's been evaluated time after time after time and found to, uh, to generate the benefits that uh, we argue uh, should be expected and can be expected. Philadelphia's most recent water example, but people are doing this all the time. Three sentences. Number one, we need to do it. Number two, others have done it. Number three, we, we can do it too. Take that to the bank. Take it home tonight. Thank you. Okay, thank you for listening to us with the film. And um, we will post some additional resources. I will post on the podcast that you can take a look at, the, which is the episode description on our website. Just a couple of quick observations. Um, and this is a matter of um, environmental justice, too. One example is Navajo Nation. 30% lack running water, not just sanitary water, but any running water. It goes back to history um, when they entered a lease with the Peabody coal mine. Well, Peabody simply depleted the aquifer, did not clean up any of the uh, mess, um, spilled billions of gallons of contaminated water, etc. Tribal mines have also been contaminated there on the Navajo Nation with uranium. And they, the ponds there leaked 300 million gallons at one point of radioactive waste, which takes thousands of years to clean up. So this is um, something that is environmental justice. We'll move on to our... Um, calendar and close out and again we'll have some additional resources listed on our website here is a calendar of events for the week of november 28 2022 wednesday november 30th 7 p.m implications for water conservation chemical waste sites in wichita and throughout kansas is an online event hosted by the kansas green party please register in advance for this meeting the link is on our facebook page 
Wednesday, November 30th, and Saturday, December 3rd, each starting at 10 a.m., help plant trees in neighborhoods as a volunteer with Heartland Tree Alliance. The Wednesday event is at Meadow Lake Neighborhood in Prairie Village, Kansas, and the Saturday event is at Oak Park in Kansas City, Missouri. Register at bridgingthegap.org. Thursday, December 1st, noon till 1 p.m., Planning Your Native Garden Project, a no-charge webinar hosted by Deep Roots KC. Registration link is on our Facebook page. Friday, December 2nd, noon, on Zoom, Greenwashing Hydrogen, Understanding the Climate Risks of Blue Hydrogen, an hour-long webinar offered by Frack Tracker Alliance. Registration link is on our Facebook page. My name is Elaine. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Eco Radio KC? Learn more at kkfi.org slash marketing. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. This past summer, powerful monsoon rains in Pakistan caused devastating floods that killed more than 1,500 people and destroyed more than 2 million homes. It had huge impacts. Freddie Otto is with the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London. She was part of a team that analyzed how global warming contributed to the disaster. She says rainfall in the region is highly unpredictable. But after accounting for natural variations and other factors... We found that climate change did definitely increase the likelihood of rainfall like this quite considerably. She says some models showed that during the five days when rain was most extreme climate change increased rainfall intensity by up to 50% in the hardest-hit provinces. Periods of intense rain are projected to grow more common as warming continues. We have already seen it in large parts of Asia that especially the short-duration heavy rainfall is increasing with climate change. The risks to people are exacerbated by poverty and poor infrastructure. So as the flooding in Pakistan shows, the consequences of extreme rain can be dire. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Midcoast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is Richard Mabian, and you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page. Up next is Fiesta Musicale, followed by Noche Magica. 
Our outro music is Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got Till it's gone Ooh, ba, ba, ba. Da, da. <laughs>